Uh, before I get into the Word, I do just need to thank you guys. Um, we were able to have surgery again this past week. Uh, I've lost some weight because I keep cutting out chunks of skin in my body. It's not the best, but it is an effective way of weight loss. Um, but the good news is uh, they checked the lymph nodes, took out a few of those, and uh, those were clear, no cancer in the lymph nodes that they could detect. So, very grateful. Uh, and, you know, I, at, at some point here, I'm going to probably just share some uh, experience from walking through having somebody tell you you have cancer. You know, that I, so many of you that I didn't know that you had walked through issues like that and have talked with me over the last few, few months or weeks here. Um, and it's, it's an interesting perspective. And so there's a number of things that the Lord has given opportunity for learning. And, and actually, at, at this point, I think some time I want to try and spend. The Lord has been very faithful to, to keep me very busy through this last month or so. I've spoken at two conferences and had plenty of stuff to do here. So I thank God that didn't give me a lot of idle time to let my mind go in the wrong direction. Uh, but there's many little lessons that are just waiting for me to sit down with God and, and write out uh, what he was able to communicate and open my heart to expose some things and teach me and teach me about walking with him in life. And so I'm excited to look at that. I'm sure you will you'll have more cancer illustrations than you can stand coming in the months and years ahead. Um, but one thing I, I just want to highlight, and your applause just now gives away, um, the ability to walk through a season like that would not have been fruitful, I believe, if it had not been for your prayers. And so as a person who has been on the receiving end of what it, what it feels like to have an army of people amass the power of prayer, uh, I am extremely grateful. And I know for many folks, sometimes you feel like, you know, how can you serve the church? What, what, what impact can you have on the church? And, you know, you, you don't do this, you don't do that, and, and you're looking for ways to be involved. You know, prayer ministry should be at the top of people's list of importance. Uh, for we were, Gina and I and our family were sustained by the influence in the unseen realm that you brought into our lives through praying for us. And, and I just want to stand at the head of the line of many other candidates who would be thrilled to have you praying for them. So what you did for me, please continue to do that for others. Uh, you know, we've had a, a rash of people getting news on cancer. Craig Strykmiller, I just continue to ask to pray for Craig. Um, Annette Loria is awaiting a diagnosis in the next couple of days here. Uh, and there would be many others that, that can benefit from your prayer. And this is a vital thing of what it means to be a part of a church. So if you're not part of the prayer team, wow, man, what a great place for you to contribute, vitally contribute into people's lives uh, through prayer for them. So I am eternally grateful. Gina and I have been blessed by your care and support and um, look forward to sharing some more about that in the future. But this morning I want to share from John chapter 17. Um, you know, we, we acted like we could get through this whole chapter quickly and it was foolish on our part. Forgive me for acting as though we could move through this quickly. Jeff took the first swing at it, acted like he actually told us. Can you imagine this? 
He said he was going to preach the whole chapter of John 17. We gave him this assignment to preach from John 17. After a few days of study, he comes back and says, I'm only doing the first five verses. (laughs) So I stood up arrogantly thinking, well, I'll just finish the rest of the whole thing. I didn't. I didn't make it. And there's one particular aspect here that, again, I know we've highlighted this, that many, many series of messages have been birthed out of this one chapter. And significantly so. This is the Son of God disclosing the strategy of his prayer for us. Uh, this, this gives away what's in the heart of God. This is the priorities of God. In, on a short list of what would the Son of God be praying for for us? If I'm curious to just kind of eavesdrop on that, I'm going to learn some things about what God deems as most important in this passage here. So in this, there's too much to cover. But there was one aspect that, given the culture in which we live, uh, I could not race past it. And I'm going to go back in just to one particular verse. John chapter 17, verse 17. And, you know, let me, let me, I'm going to give a good bit of background today, but let me just give one tease here. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the ultimate figure in human history, the person that most people have at least heard of, uh, the one that many would want to ascribe some life ideas to him that they've been influenced by, he is praying a certain way in this passage. And what I'm going to highlight today might not fit into modern thinking about, you know, Jesus, the, the first century hippie love child, right? Isn't that kind of who Jesus is to some people? He's the ultimate lover of people. You know, he didn't, he didn't own anything, just kind of traveled from place to place. He just loved people. And he did. But he was not a late 60s hippie. I mean, that, those notions pollute the ability for you to hear him say anything else. He was on a mission. He was on a mission that was very narrow and very tight. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why people sometimes can't stand Christianity. Because it has this narrowness to it. But what I want to do today in just helping us think through some of the dynamic of what Jesus did here is to simply go back to ascribe to Him what He said. These are His words. This is what He prayed. So when He prays this simple prayer, verse 17, He says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them, set them apart, as we'll see in a moment, in truth. He's going to put some borders, some boundaries around what he thinks is good about life, which immediately means, by implication, you can be outside those borders. You can be living outside of what Jesus was praying for in this passage. Follow this first quote here with me. R.C. Sproul wrote a book called The Consequences of Ideas. I love that title. As a matter of fact, scratch out the title I have, Sanctify Them in the Truth. The the title of the message needs to be Truth or Consequences. That's the title today. Mr. Sproul says, Most ideas that shape our lives are accepted, at least initially, somewhat uncritically. We do not create a world or environment from scratch and then live in it. 
Rather, we step into a world and culture that already exists, and we learn to interact with it. Now, now just let that stir at you for a moment. Here, here is the basic truth of all of us. We get birthed into this world, and there's not a one of us who decided to discard every idea that was presented to us and say, no, no, I'm, I'm coming up with everything on my own. I'm going to originate every thought. I'm challenging everything. Everything that I know about life, everything you present to me, everything that's taught to me as a child, I, I'm going to challenge it, and I'm going to start from scratch. Now, reality, none of us did that, right? And then especially when we're young, we, we don't know to be analytical. We don't know to be critical of the ideas that are being presented to us. So you get well into life before you probably do a significant job of even asking any questions about what you believe and why you believe it. Now, I don't know. I'm assuming that's everybody's experience. I think it's safe to say. I know it was mine. I grew up in suburban New Orleans. So that meant I was born into an environment, into a family, into a lifestyle, into a middle-class income that looked at what was good, what was bad, who was, who was good and who was bad. Before I even knew that there were ideas in me, there were already many, many ideas in me. There, there, were, there were political ideas in me before I ever even knew to debate anything. You know, my parents' allegiances to certain political candidates or political views, which, you know, let, let's all be honest here. Uh, we, have a, we have some ideas about life that we're trying to protect that ultimately are going to benefit us. And so, therefore, we, we get our politics to get in line with that. We want to make sure people handle money in a way that's going to benefit our view and where we are in life. Well, you know, that's what I grew up in, just like you did. So before I knew it, I was for this candidate and against that one. You know, you remember when you're in grammar school and you have these debates and stuff, and you go and you talk in class, and one guy acts like he's this candidate, and the other one acts like this. You know, before we even arrived, right? We had these ideas. So, you know, we're in fourth grade, these deep politicians. Well, you know, it wasn't just politics that we had ideas about. You know, you grew up, every one of us grew up here with ideas about race in your life. You're exposed to your race and other races. And things were being said throughout your life that either gave you an affection or a hostility towards other races. Right? That was true for me. Right? I'm from white, suburban, middle class New Orleans. So you can imagine what I grew up with, thinking about races, watching the news at night, listening to the commentary that wasn't coming from the TV, was coming from the couch about those people and who they were and what they did. And, you know, so you're raised in that and you just begin to just accumulate those ideas. Right now, some of you here, you're not from middle class white suburbia. You're from black inner city and you grew up watching the news. And you listened to people say things. And you formed affections or hostility about others. And next thing you know, you've got ideas in you and ideas do have consequences. Right? And all of a sudden the world has shifted from where it was a hundred years ago 
in that category. And it's all of a sudden trying to lead the way. You know, in the, in the South, for years, if you led the way in racial ideas, they were very different than what's leading the way now. So all of a sudden, the world's decided, you know, we had some ideas that we don't know if they were right. We need to go back and adjust some of those. But religion, you grew up around religion. I grew up around religion. Before I knew it, religious ideas were in place in my life. Who God was, how to relate to Him, how to behave, why to behave, how to approach God. Was I all right with God? Did God accept me? Should I be concerned? Should I be afraid of God? Is God a big Santa Claus in the sky? All these ideas, they were in me growing up. Now, there came a point in my life, it was 1978, where I got exposed to the Bible. I'd never read the Bible before. But all of a sudden, I'm reading the Bible. And quite honestly, I'm reading the Bible, and it's saying things that I hadn't quite considered. It's saying it in a little bit different of a way. And it's actually saying some things that sort of are cutting across the grain of what I believe in my personal views on religion. And I can remember those next couple of years of reading the Bible. See, because whether, whether any of us want to acknowledge this or not, the Bible is unique. And you know what? I didn't know how unique it was when I began to read it, but it had power simply because it has power. Whether you acknowledge it has power or not, it has power because it's the Word of God. So it began to mess with my world. And so the next couple of years as I read the Bible, I began to ask questions about what I believed and why did I believe it? Right, for the first time in my life, I was probably 17 years old. I'd grown up, you know, in New Orleans area, so I grew up Catholic. Had just accepted what I'd been taught throughout my life. When I was 17 years old, by then I'd read enough of the Bible to realize, you know, not everything I'm reading in the Bible sounds like what I had been taught. Why did I believe what I had been taught? First time in my life I'm asking that question. I'm asking it because I'm encountering something that what we're looking at today, I'm encountering the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. I'm bumping into the truth and my ideas are being challenged. So I decided to figure out why. Where did, I, where did these other ideas, I recognize that. There were ideas. Where did they come from? I got out of Baltimore Catechism. I began to research where did this idea come from in the church? Where did this idea come from that I was taught by a relative or a catechism class? Where did this idea come from? And I began to find dates. I mean, I didn't realize. I mean, I just figured these things have been around forever. No, they hadn't been around forever. There was an original date. This one didn't come along until this date. And this idea didn't start until this date. And then this one started because this person suggested this. And then eventually a decision was made. And that really let the air out of the mystery for me. All of a sudden, these mysterious ideas that I just thought always had been, I realized they haven't always been. At some point, they began. And what do I do with the ones that began that don't sound like the ones that are in the Bible? See, Jesus prayed a prayer for everyone who would follow him. He didn't just say sanctify them. He said sanctify them in the truth. So that becomes an issue for every one of us in this room. To see the prayer of the Son of God answered means my life is to have a collision course with the truth. No matter where I've come from, no matter what my color, what religious background I've been exposed to, whether I'm middle class, upper class, no class. <laughs> Some of us are in that class. 
Prayer has been prayed for us, and it has sanctified them in the truth. Now, what does that word sanctify mean? It's the Greek word hagiazo. It means to consecrate, to devote, or set apart from a common to a sacred use. Now, to be set apart in the truth for Christian means to be set apart from common ideas, the easily accessible common natural ideas of the culture, maybe of the religious institutions around us, to be set apart from those things unto the ideas of the truth. Now, here's my question. Is there a presence of truth in your life that shapes what you think and what you believe? Is there a presence of truth? Is there something that comes to you Because if you remember that you were just a little kid buying into ideas until one day you had to check those ideas out. And that's true for every one of us. Is there a presence of truth that comes to you and it shapes what you believe and the ideas that are informing your life? Is there something like that in your life? Now, when I use that word shape, does it kind of make you, hmm, you mean it shapes my, you know, doesn't that sound like sort of a brainwashing thing? That sounds like brainwashing. Okay, well, let's, let's go there for a second. If you mean by brainwashing that my internal ideas have come under the influence of external ideas and they have changed my internal ideas, is that what you mean by brainwashing? Because if that is what you mean by brainwashing, you can get in line behind me. I have been brainwashed. But so have you. You didn't originate all your ideas. You just look in the mirror, check your hairstyle out. You didn't come up with that. (laughs) The clothing that you're wearing, you didn't come up with that. I mean, there's not a lot original about you, quite honestly. There just isn't. So at some point, you were willing to let your internal ideas be submitted to external ideas. So none of us should treat that like, oh, well, you just, you know, so you just follow the Bible? Okay. So what do you do? Just follow Fred down the street? Right? No, no. I follow Aunt Joyce. Great. Okay. You know, Aunt, you know, you know, everybody got an Aunt Joyce in your life? She's the loud religious person in your life. And if she ever found out what you were doing on Friday night, whoo, you would, you know, you ain't going to Thanksgiving dinner because Aunt Joyce is going to ask. Right, so she's bringing influence into your life. You know, I'm glad for Aunt Joyce, but you're buying into her ideas. You're buying into somebody's ideas. Everybody is. Well, the question is here, is truth, what Jesus prayed for, was that truth would be the boundary field for our lives. The Son of God prayed for His people. And His earnest desire was, Father, sanctify them, set them apart in the ideas of truth, not somewhere else, not a different set of ideas. Set them apart in the truth. Now, I want to introduce you to the idea that something is playing the role of being a sounding board in your life. I borrowed a couple of ideas from our pivot retreat we had a few weeks ago. You know what a sounding board is? Most of us have, have lived past the day of you know, sounding boards needed in musical instruments because we have 
synthesizers. But, you know, acoustic guitars, pianos, they have a sounding board dynamic in them. They take vibration and they bounce it off of that and it projects. And when it projects, you get to hear what it sounds like. So you get to hear, is it in tune? Did that sound good? So sounding boards are where we get phrases like, hey, can I just bounce something off of you for a second? You know, what does that phrase mean? It's a sounding board phrase. It means, I don't know if this is a harebrained idea, but let me just bounce this off of you. And so you go and find somebody that you think has a perspective that would be helpful, and you bounce that off of them. And if they look at you like, uh, that's pretty stupid, uh, you get feedback from that, and that feedback tells you, should I or should I not do this? Well, in your life, you are always using a sounding board. Should I get married? Should I marry one person or two, maybe three? I mean, you, you, you're just thinking these things through. You just, just get these crazy ideas and you bounce them off something. Now, many of them are culture. You just bounce them off the culture. You immediately know, no, you know, this isn't, this isn't Utah. We don't marry multiple people. So, no, just one at a time. And so you don't even go there, right? But where did you get the idea not to be so, wow, and out there? Because you bounced that off of something and it came back sounding crazy. So you didn't do it. So there's sounding board dynamics in our lives all the time. And when you and I go to make decisions about what do we want to be in life? What do we want to do? What do we want to pursue? Who do we want to be around? What do we call fun? What do we call dangerous? What's foolish? What's safe for us to do? What's okay and acceptable? What is not? What is way over the top? You know, where do we get these ideas from? We bounce our thoughts off of something. And when it comes back, it informs us whether we should reject that or accept it. My question for us is, is the Bible and the truth of God's word the sounding board for our lives? Or is it some other ideas? Because other ideas have consequences attached to them. Look in Colossians chapter 2 just for a moment. We're just looking at a couple of verses here today. Colossians chapter 2. And this verse informs us of something. It's just the simple reality that not all ideas are safe. Can we all at least get in that room together? Not all ideas are safe. There's lots of ideas. They're not all good ones. They don't all lead to a good place. So how do we know which ones are the ones to stay away from? Which ones that shape us should we avoid? Paul says this, Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, Jesus Christ stood and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So when we talk about Christ, we're talking about the truth. So Paul says you, you have some multiple choice categories here as, as to where ideas are going to come from. And he kind of puts it into three realms. One's really an exclusive one. The first two are philosophy and traditions. Right? And in an age in which Paul is speaking here, 
Uh, his concern is the philosophical influence of the culture, the religious traditional influence from the Jews, and the mere fact that any ideas would ever misplace Christ. If Christ is misplaced by an idea, that's not an idea you want for a believer. So any idea that comes to you, that's got to be the ultimate measuring rod. Does this idea dislocate Christ? Does it put him in a position that is not God, that is not primary, that is not preeminent? Well, then that's not an idea that needs to work in my life because it's, it's a wrong idea, according to Paul. But there are ideas that come to us in this instance, through philosophies and traditions. And Paul says, beware. That word actually there, your translations may say, beware. Be on guard. Be alert. The Greek word there means to be discerning. Don't just let ideas come flowing through your head because they're available. It's like get up and put on some kind of a filtering mechanism that before you ingest that thing, you can stop it and analyze it. Paul says live that way. Wake up in the morning knowing that ideas are coming to you. Before you eat them, analyze them. And make sure that Christ is in the right place in them. Because you're going to hear philosophies out there and you're going to hear traditions. And I want to go after both of those today. Right? The Greeks, they were into philosophy. Paul is speaking in an age in which philosophers, uh, they, they are the, the modern celebrity of the day. These guys, they were spellbinding orators. They, they could gather a crowd and dazzle you with the way that they communicated things. They could hold your attention and because they could hold your attention, they could influence you with their ideas. So next thing you know, you're, you're wanting to follow these guys. Right? I mean, this is the age of Aristotle and Plato. And, and all these guys are communicating. And then there's junior schools of these guys who are running around communicating the next great ideas. You remember one of the things that Paul had to, to come against was people compared him to these incredible orators. And they said, Paul, you ain't one of them. His letters are really impressive. But you ever hear the guy speak? He shows up and he is not impressive. Paul said, well, you know, I didn't come among you seeking to impress you that way. I came among you seeking to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's my message. His message was what was compelling, not his means of holding your attention. Now, beware today. We don't have philosophers, but we do have philosophers. Anybody who can gain an audience is a philosopher. Because the mere fact that he can hold your attention means that you'll listen to what he has to say. So today, you know, these aren't guys who have been living in a cave, stroking their beards, thinking about how to say things. These are guys who write music. These are, you know, I'm, I'm just, I mean, this, some of this sounds so stupid. If you were from another planet, you would think this is a, this is a planet of idiots. <laughs> right? You have a person who may be the most backwards, freaked out individual but they can act, right? So you set them on a movie set and they pretend to be somebody else. And because they can really do a good job of pretending to be somebody else, we fall in love with all their pretending. And then they become spokespeople on Oprah for something. I mean, who are they really? They, they, they fake life on, in public and get paid for it. And then they stand up personally and we go, yeah, wow, endorsed by, you know, that book was written by. You know. And we listen to them. Who are these people? You don't even know who they are. 
If you spend an hour with some of these people, you probably run out of the room thinking, oh my, these people are weird. <laughs> but they fly fast jets in movies, you know, and they got cool lines, you know. They got cool lines that somebody labored over for hours. Don't you wish you were half the smart aleck some of these guys were? I do. I mean, I'm thinking limited anointing to be a smart aleck. I wish these guys come up with some line. You're like, man, I wish I could think to say that in that moment like that. That dude is so cool. No, he's faking a line that somebody sat down and wrote for hours and rewrote it and then gave it to him and he practiced it for two days. So these guys are the philosophers. You get some knucklehead rap artist who can... You know, who can string together a few lines and influence a culture with some goofy ideas. Right now, I'm, I'm not into rap at all. Okay, so I grew up with knuckleheads from the 60s and 70s who equally, you know, you could strap a guitar on and grow your hair long and smoke dope and say something. It's like, let's listen to him, man. <laughs> wow, did you hear that? And these are the modern philosophers for us. You know, I guess the other thing, if you can strap on a lot of plastic, bash your head in, take the helmet off after the game and say something, it's like, did you hear what he said, man? Uh, you shouldn't listen to him. He just got his head wrong. I mean, he, <laughs> this guy doesn't know. He's on Queer Street right now, and he's telling you how to live life. It's like, go, go, go put plastic on. Don't speak. You have a job where you shouldn't speak. Just go, go hit people. But then they speak about life, and we go, let's listen. These are philosophers, and they speak about life. And we listen to them. So there are philosophers today that have a, a huge influence over what we're wearing, where we're going, what's important. Right? We're spending our money because some of these people told us about a product or a way of life. Well, Paul didn't just go after philosophers. He went after traditions as well. Traditions are powerful, powerful things. And I, today I want to I take the mystery out of traditions Traditions are things that just have been around for a long time and are practiced by a significant number of people. That's a tradition. And when you break traditions, it's radical, isn't it? Right? Try and break traditions, right? Are you, are, do you all have family traditions coming up here? You've got Thanksgiving coming up. You've got Christmas coming up. You want to just have a fun experiment? Just don't go with what you all been doing for 20 years with your family. Just decide, you know, we're, uh, we're taking a cruise for Christmas, we're not going to be home. So, what? You know, just just break with tradition. You know, I don't know. Uh, serve tacos for ter- for Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know, just watch people freak out. You know, it's like. But you remember, at some point, traditions had no momentum, no audience, and they were a first day idea for somebody, right? You know, Uncle Fred decided. Cut the ham in half and drop it in some Coke, you know? It's like, and then he cooked it, and then he did it again next year. And then after about five years of that, it's like, what do you mean Uncle Fred's not bringing his ham? <gasps> it's like, the tradition's going to die. It's like, wait, it was, it was an accident to start with. Uh, but traditions come to us, and all they are is an idea that enough people have bought into over a long enough period of time, and now they've got momentum. And if you don't do them, you feel weird. The question is, should they have ever occupied that kind of authority in our lives, ever? Shouldn't they have just been, there's lots of stuff you can eat on Thanksgiving Day. Eat whatever you want. If you want to eat that again this year after eating it for the last 28 years in a row, well, then go ahead. But don't freak out if somebody doesn't eat that, right? But, you know, <gasps> traditions. Well, 
Paul was all over addressing these traditions because Jesus was all over addressing them. Remember, the Jews had created all kinds of ideas. In addition to the scriptures, they had their own ideas. Jesus challenged the Pharisees on their ideas and saying, you know what, you guys, let me just tell you, in vain, he said to them, in vain do you worship me. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of of men, you have made void the commandments of God. Well, listen, that still is possible. That religious people can create ideas that get at odds with the truth, but because they're traditions, we feel so weird about messing with them. And so we'll walk through a little bit of that. But here's the consequence to discarding, right? What Paul says here, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. Now, here's the alternatives, truth or consequences. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you Paul said, be careful that you don't get taken captive by ideas and philosophies that are out there. Right, now, Matt kind of led up to this. So I want to ask a question to us. And he kind of made this statement in what we were thinking through and enjoying during worship. My question is, why do we think there's no consequence to disregarding God's ideas? Just blowing them off. Why, why do we think that those are suggestions that if we set them aside, you can still have a good life? Rewarding, safe, it'll still be okay. Right? If we just started with the very most basic thing God ever said would be the first commandment that orders everything else about our life. That God identified himself as God and he told us, you shall have no other gods before me. No other God, nothing ever in your life should ever become more important to you than me. Now, why do we think we can set that idea aside, let other things become more important than God and still live without any consequence to that? God said that. It's the most fundamental aspect of being a human being. He's got to be first. He's got to be first. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, listen, doesn't that sound restrictive? Doesn't it sound like God's sort of infringing on our fun? It's controlling, limiting us. Okay, yeah, that might be one way of looking at it. But, but might it also be protective and preventative? Might it also be the very words that we need to hear so that we could ever discover life rather than run some cheap substitute for what God had in mind from the beginning, what we were really destined for? This is a wonderfully helpful quote from Timothy Keller, whose recent book, Counterfeit Gods, is, is simply outstanding. He says this, The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. Anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us than God becomes an enslaving idol. Right? That's worth saying again. Anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us than God becomes an enslaving idol. In this paradigm, we can locate idols by looking at our most unyielding emotions. All right, you ready to find your idols? What makes us uncontrollably angry? 
anxious or despondent. Very revealing. Whatever that is, that's just not there because it's there, because that's just the way I am. No, no, no. It's there as the symptom of an idol. There's something that's risen to godlike proportions in our hearts that if you touch it, you will be in danger. (laughs) I'll come out swinging. I'll become anxious. I'll become depressed. What racks us with guilt we can't shake? Idols control us since we feel we must have them or life is meaningless. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives, Rebecca Piper said. What many people call psychological problems are simply issues of idolatry. Perfectionism, workaholism, chronic indecisiveness, the need to control the lives of others. All of these stem from making good things into idols that then drive us into the ground as we try to appease them. Idols dominate our lives. This book is extremely helpful. I'm not sure at one point it will probably be a book of the month choice. You know, if you're here this morning and the symptom of your life is controlling, angry, depressed, worn out, frustrated. Like, listen, you can try and trim those things off your life, but the root of them is idolatry. Something else has become so important in our lives that God has been displaced. Well, ideas have crept in and told us what to make so important. And those ideas didn't come from God. They were the ones that Paul warned us about. He said, beware that you don't get taken captive. Idols take us captive. And we become enslaved to them. And life becomes a menacing threat every day. Trying to figure out how to have that thing, how not to lose it, how to control people to make sure everybody around us is doing what we need them to do so we can have life. That's a terrible way to live. But it came as a result of exchanging the truth for another idea. That's where it came from. I've bought into some ideas that I never should have. Idols... Idolatrous ideas take us captive, but the truth sets us free. Right? John 8.31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So when Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Don't sanctify them in every idea that's out there. Don't sanctify them in philosophies. Don't sanctify them in traditions. Sanctify them in the truth, in this boundary, in this border area. God, don't let them get outside of these ideas. Now, when God does that, is he being a killjoy? Or is he releasing us into joy? If I painted this platform up here and I painted a five by five little square here. And right there was labeled good. And everything outside of it was labeled bad unhealthy, 
destructive, enslaving, heart-wrenching, deceitful, temporary. And then I came along and said, stand right here and only right here. What would you feel about me? Oh, Keith, you're you're so narrow-minded. That's what I can't stand about you. You're so narrow-minded. You're just trying to kill all the joy. Listen, if you saw this accurately, if what I just described was the truth, that there's only a place right here to stand that's good and healthy and joyful and everywhere else truly is going to eat you alive, then you no longer would see me as a killjoy, would you? You'd see me as doing the most loving thing that could ever be done in your life. That's what truth does for our life. See, truth gets a bad rap. It's like, well, truth, that's just so narrow. Listen, it is what the Son of God prayed. Sanctify them in truth. Nowhere else in truth. Well, what do you know? Well, I've got ideas, and there's, you know, there's ways, and there's nothing wrong with so-and-so and the way he does that. And you mean to tell me? And we argue for all these other ideas rather than the truth. Listen, there's never a freer moment for a Christian than when he's living in the boundaries of the truth. There's never a greater joy. There's never a greater reward for our life. It's what we're designed for. You know, like, like a train is designed to run on a track. Right? And they, have, they have trains now. They have trains in Japan, I believe, that go 350 miles an hour. I'm, I'm not sure that's a train I want to be on. I don't mind going that fast when I'm way up in the sky and everything looks like it's moving slow. But to see objects going past the window at 350 miles an hour, I don't know if I want to drive that train, but... But they can design trains now to go 350 miles an hour. Now, how thrilling would it be to just have this attitude that says, you know, that's the thing I hate about this train. It's got to stay on the stinking tracks. Well, you're traveling 350 miles an hour. Would you like to get off the track? (laughs) Just for a few moments. A little excursion up into the hill for a second. Right? You don't return from that jaunt, do you? It destroys you. Okay, well, for a Christian, you're traveling through life fast. And life is flying by you. And God has designed you to be safe in one place, in the truth. It's why the Son of God prays, Father, sanctify them in the truth. They will be safe nowhere else. And Paul warns, beware, you get outside of the truth, you will be taken captive. You will be kidnapped, is what that Greek word actually means. So where where do these ideas, let's get a quick look at where these ideas Come from, And I'm going to race through two aspects. One is tradition, the other is philosophy. Now, to do tradition, I'm going to have to take us back into church history. So walk with me for a few moments here through church history as it develops from the time of Christ to some ideas, ideas, new ideas that begin to come into the church and shape and create traditions that years later you and I are living in these ideas and still under their influence. Approximately 200 A.D., a man named Tertullian of Carthage in northern Africa. He promotes the idea of vesting authority in church tradition. Now, there was a reason why he did this. The church at that point was coming under the attack of all kinds of new ideas. People were coming in who were teachers of ideas. They were philosophers a bit. They were incorporating some aspects of biblical concepts. But there was a lot of new ideas coming in, and there was a threat to the statements of truth that were being understood by the Bible. So Tertullian, to protect the church, stood up and said, wait, wait, that's not the way we've understood the Bible. Traditionally, we have understood it to mean this, and that's what we've understood apostolic teaching to mean. 
So keep your new ideas. We're sticking with what the apostles taught and what those who came after the apostles taught and with the traditions that we've learned. That's not a bad thing to do. It's not a bad thing to do, right? Ian Campbell reports, he argued that the church should have nothing whatsoever to do with heretics and that tradition was of equal importance to Scripture. Okay, so when he said that, I don't think he realized what he was creating when he said that, when Uncle Fred dropped the ham in the Coke on that day and said for the first time, that tradition was equal with Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible does that idea exist. Only the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Everything else is human attempts at ideas. Maybe well associated with the Bible, maybe not. But he let a cat out of the bag that would come back to be very influential. Just 50 years later, a man named Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage, he was very influenced by Tertullian from the same part of the world. So Cyprian taught the supremacy and authority of the Episcopal succession, the succession of bishops in locations, which brought an unwarranted distinction into the church between the office bearers of the church and possibly between the office bearers and the people. He taught that Peter was the original bishop and Rome the chief Church. Now, you do realize at some point, that's the first time somebody's hearing this. Now, why did this man do this? Because he was just dying to create some ideas that would be problematic in the future? No, there had just been a great persecution in the church, and there was a great falling away. People, their faith had, quote, lapsed, and they had renounced Christianity, and they had moved away from the church. And now some of them, years later, were repenting of that and were coming back to the church, seeking to come back into the church. And so certain leaders in the church began to accept them back in. And certain other leaders said, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, what gives you the right to accept them back in? Who are you to say they can come back in? Because I don't think they should be allowed back in. If once they have departed from the faith and they have, they have renounced their faith, they should not be let back in. So a debate arose as to who has the right to say whether a person is now accepted back in. And so what Cyprian did, he appealed to those who were more well-known. He appealed to bishops in locations like Rome who were respected. And he appealed to the idea that there was any form of succession for them to have more authority to say so than average Joe Bishop over here in some town somewhere. Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? Or him, or him, or him. At some point, this is an idea, right? He's more distinct than him. He has more authority than him. Who who said so? And with the idea that one bishop had more authority than another bishop, now you had this distinction between bishops. Not only that, you had a distinction between somebody called a bishop and somebody not called a bishop. So into the church came another idea during this time. Into the church during this time came the idea of penance as well. Because what certain leaders begin to say is, okay, well, this guy wants back in. How do we know he's sincere? How do we know he's really repented of what he's been doing and what he's renounced? I think there needs to be a time of trial. I think this guy needs to prove himself. He needs to take these steps before he can be accepted back in. Does that sound familiar to anybody? 
Right? When you go back to the Bible, does anybody from the Bible find the idea of penance in the Bible? But you do see it erupting onto the scene in about the year 200 in the midst of falling away. Somebody had an idea that we shouldn't just be... And you know what? It probably was a decent idea because people were returning that had real issues and whether or not we should accept them back in was a legitimate question. And how do we say whether they're in or out? These are all legitimate questions. And they did something that 100 years later is the way you do it now. And 200 years later, it's just the way you do it now. And 600 years later, it's the way it's always been. You understand where traditions come from? This is where traditions come from. And the idea that Peter was the original bishop, you cannot find that in the Bible. Peter is used of God alongside a list of other men that were used of God. The evidence from the New Testament would not put Peter in a position of superiority. Oh, what about the statement Jesus made about him being the rock? Not a good statement to try and build your idea from. I won't go into that. But if you look from that day on, if you looked into the New Testament, you'll find where there were decisions that had to be made and leadership councils that had to be called. In Acts chapter 15, there's a council called. All the apostles have gathered. Do you know who's running that event? The apostle James. Not the apostle Peter. When we read the rest of the New Testament, do we find Peter prominent? Do we find Paul prominent? If you wanted to deputize somebody and say, who became the prominent leader of the church? It wouldn't have been Peter. It would have probably been Paul. But that's not what we find. The idea that we're going to make Rome the centerpiece of the church, where would we find that in the Bible? In the Bible, Antioch, if anything, may have been the centerpiece of the church in the first century. Jerusalem certainly was the epicenter of Christianity. But let me just raise this question. Should anywhere be known as the center of Christianity? Where we get the idea that we should deputize any location to be the centerpiece of the God who governs the earth. Who just simply got the thing started in Jerusalem, by the way. See, traditions, they get created. We go back to the Bible in which we're to be sanctified in the truth. We don't find these. Approximately 312 to 337 A.D., the emperor Constantine comes onto the scene and has a conversion experience in 312 and begins to bring his ideas to bear on the church. Ian Campbell again says, there does not appear to have been much formalization of church right and practice until the time of Constantine. Not humble by nature, Constantine was always dressed in rich finery. At one point, he presented the Bishop of Jerusalem with clerical vestments adorned and splendid to rival those of the pagan priests. This was one of the first instances of of vestments of a special kind to be used by the clergy, right? Can you see a tradition getting started here? Nobody dressed special. You stood up to preach. You stood up with what you just got finished cleaning your fish probably with. This in turn led to increased clericalism in the church. The church organization of the second and third centuries had been very simple. But following Constantine's wishes, gradually church councils assumed greater power and gave bishops increased power and authority. There was a clear division, an unbiblical division, between clergy and laity, between ministers and people. Listen, there's a day one for all these ideas. In our culture, I am dressed down today. 
I used to be more dressed down. You know, the day that we shed suits around here and took off ties caused some people to go, just not wearing a tie. Well, you know, don't wear a collar, you know. Where's that? Where's the, where do these ideas come from? That the, the clerical people should wear special garments different from the rest of the people. And then when we take these garments off, it's like, can you believe that? He's not wearing a suit, pulpit. Where do we get the idea to wear a suit anyway? This is, there's nothing in the Bible about how you dress when you preach the gospel. I mean, I assume there's clothes involved. but <laughs> Beyond that, there's not a specific here. But we get, we get so <gasps> about that. Let me tell you what a huge, huge consequence that came. It was because as soon as the dude started dressing in garb, a distinction was made between who this guy is and who you're not. I'm the minister. Let me put my collar on. Let me put something on that distinguishes me from you. That's why I wear that, because I'm not one of you. And by the way, you're not one of me. And can I tell you something? I don't know if there has been a more detrimental idea that's affected the church than that one. Because what it did was it disarmed all the ministers of the gospel and put the ministry of the gospel in the hands of a few individuals. You know, do you feel the sense of compelling to preach the gospel yourself? To lay your hands on people and pray for them? Or is that just for the special people to do? Do you lead others to Christ? Or do you lead them to people who can lead them to Christ? Do you understand? You have been affected by this. You are living thinking that being a Christian means sitting in a chair and listening to somebody who's wearing a special outfit tell you about God. When Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel, do you think he just meant a few? There's nothing that's cut the legs out of the Christian ministry like this idea did. The idea that there's clergy and laity. No, there are biblical leaders in the church. But there is not a priesthood and a non-priesthood in the church. That is an unbiblical idea. But it is a very traditional idea. And you try and rock the boat of that tradition. And you got fights on your hands. But you understand, until Constantine came along and formalized these ideas, they were foreign to the church. They should have remained that way. Campbell goes on and says, It was largely during the 4th century that Rome became a center of strategic importance for the church. The Church Council of Sardissa recognized the jurisdiction of Rome. Coupled with this was the development of monastic life, in which certain believers isolated themselves from the world and lived in monasteries where they followed ascetic practices and sought absolute devotion to God. Again, a concept foreign to the Bible. Go into all the world meant go into all the world. It didn't mean go off and get by yourself. Does that mean we will never get by ourselves? No, we need to get by ourselves as we are going into all the world. They lived in monasteries where they followed ascetic practices and sought absolute devotion to God. Alongside this, there developed the rise of nunneries for women. This was also an insistence, there was also an insistence on the celibacy of bishops. I mean, you do realize at one point, there's a new idea out there. The new idea is, if you want to be a bishop or a priest, you can't be married. Oh, really? There's a, there's a Bible verse on that? 
Right? Now, remember, there's a little five-by-five five square here that's colored green, and it's healthy and lush and full of joy. Sanctify them in the truth. Everything outside the truth has consequences to it. These were not ideas that came from the Bible. These are ideas that came from human traditions. From Paul warned, do not let human traditions take you captive. Well, that's exactly what happened. From the 4th century to the 16th century, the church began to get more and more enamored with these ideas and more and more developing of them. And onto the scene comes one idea after another that doesn't find its origins in the Bible. It finds its origins in the ideas of men. Do you remember the Dark Ages? It was a consequence of these ideas. You see, because... If I'm special and you're not, if I'm the minister and you're not, if I wear a special outfit and I have something from God that you don't, well, then the odds are that you really can't understand the Bible. So we're going to need to take that away from you. I'm going to need to be the one who reads that from now on. And you'll just have to listen to me explain it to you. And so the Bible is taken from the common person. Do you know how big a consequence that is? That the Word of God has just been taken from the people of God. The prayer of Jesus Christ was to sanctify His people in the truth. And yet human traditions took the truth from the people of God and plunged humanity into the dark ages. Dark because the light of God was now gone in the life of the common man. There's consequences, right? I listed them quickly. Scripture was taken out of the hands of the common believer. The ministry of the gospel was taken from the laity and restricted to the clergy. The traditions of men created more and more teaching centered on human effort and merit and this great rise in emphasis on the sacraments. You do not find an emphasis on the sacraments in the Bible the way you find them in human traditions. Why? Because there's something we do. They, they center around our activity. They put us into the equation in a way that we tend to like being the mover and shaker. The obscure, obscuring of biblical teaching of the doctrine of justification by grace through Faith, that became obscured. Listen, that existed today. If you encounter the average religious person and you ask them, hey, I'm just curious to ask you a question. If you were to die today, do you think you'd go to heaven? You know what the average religious person would probably say? I I think so. Leaving room for doubt. I think so. I hope so. Well, fill that in. Why why aren't you saying yes? Yes, I would go to heaven. Well, well, because, you know, I mean, I think I've led a pretty good life. I just hope in the end that it's been good enough. Hmm. Really, does anybody go to heaven by being good enough? (laughs) Man, this is, I'm walking off a soccer field with my son. And I don't remember what happened here. We almost stepped in an ant pile and there was something about ants and we got into this conversation about ants and mean ants and bad ants and (laughs) it was deeply philosophical. Uh, And he said, he said, well, all the bad ants go to hell. (laughs) I said, so I had to stop him. I said, well, you know what? That's not exactly true. You know, let me move from ants now. Uh, I said, because you know what? There's going to be a lot of really bad people in heaven. And there'll be a lot of, quote, good people in hell. 
Because no one goes to either location based on their goodness or their badness. And you understand, this is my six-year-old son who has inbred in him from the fall a sense of ultimately it's about how good we are. So the church comes along and creates these ideas and makes it ultimately about how good we are. Rather than about being able to say, Keith, are you going to heaven if you die? Yes. That's one thing I can tell you. Being told you have cancer caused a lot of issues of sadness concerning my family. But not a moment of, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to me when I die? Because I knew exactly where I'd be. And that's, that's truth. So traditions that cause you to answer that question by saying, well, I, I think so. I hope so. You know what you're not saying when you say that? Well, you know, I, I, I think Jesus gave it his best shot. I'm, I think it was good enough. I hope it was good enough. I'm not sure, though. You know, he may have been off that day. So, I mean, I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'll get to heaven and find out, oh, Jesus didn't quite pay at all. Is that what anybody means? No. They mean, have they been good enough? Which makes the sacrifice of Christ irrelevant. That's why Jesus said, you have made null and void the commands of God by teaching men your human precepts and doctrines. You've displaced the truth. Well, something courageous happened. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to preach this message today. Because on October 31st, 1517, a man named Martin Luther had studied both the scriptures and the traditions of the church and found them to not get along with each other. And he simply wanted to start a dialogue. He was not looking to start a revolution. He was a Catholic priest who said, I, I see problems here. I see traditional ideas that have gained ground and are displacing the scriptures. And he wrote down 95 points that he thought that was true. And he nailed it, which was a common tradition for people to do. You nailed it to the door of the church to create a debate. And he nailed it to the door of the church in order to have a discussion about has tradition displaced the scriptures. And he started, without intending to start it, the Protestant Reformation. So if you really want a better day to celebrate than the one that most people wasted their time on yesterday, it would be celebrate the day that God inspired a man to put his life on the line and nail some ideas to a door. Because he saw that traditions were shoving aside the truth of God. Listen, the Son of God prayed, not that you would be set apart in traditions, but that you'd be set apart in the truth. What a huge day that was. Now listen, today, you and I, we're, we're not just living in traditional influence, we're also living in philosophical influences in our lives. You're going to have to wade through those. I'll just say this real quickly. Right? Here's a quote from the Cambridge Declaration. It says, As evangelical faith becomes secularized, its interests have been blurred with those of the culture. The result is a loss of absolute values. Right? The idea that anything today could be absolutely right or wrong. If you let the culture be your sounding board, you will come back and say, well, then you really can't know that. If you let the Bible be your sounding board, you will come back and say, well, yeah, absolutely you can know that. Because the truth is discoverable. It's given by God. Permissive individualism and a substitution of wholeness for holiness 
recovery for repentance. Wholeness and recovery. That, isn't that the message you hear in churches today? That the message of God somehow is bound up in the wholeness and recovery of man. We, we use recovery in the church world today a whole lot more than the word repentance. That's changed, hasn't it? This is a tradition. It has not always been this way. This has not been our vocabulary for very long. Be careful that you don't start. When you hear somebody preach repentance, see, the Bible used to be about, about getting right with God. And now it's about therapeutic wholeness. So if I stand up here this morning and preach to you about getting your life right with God, some people are going to say, that's the last time I'm coming to this church. Why? Because because I don't even think that's what God wants you to say. It's been the message of the Bible for countless generations. It's not today's attractive message for the church that wants to appeal to whatever makes you feel better and fixes your world. And then you vote on whether you want God to be the advisor to help do that. It's not the way the Bible sounds. Right? Let me just jump off to, on this point before I close. There are ideas that float around inside of you. And what I want to accomplish today is to, is to say, are, are we living in the answered prayer of Christ who wanted the boundaries of our life to be the truth of God? to be the sounding board about my positions in life, right? My, not just my doctrinal positions, but also just the way I live my life, the value system that I hold, right? You encounter a discussion coming up here uh, around the Thanksgiving table concerning religion. Probably so, right? And what it means to be right with God and who is acceptable and who is not, and what religions are okay and which ones are not, and what worldviews are okay with God and which ones are at odds with God, and how does God respond to that? You're going to have a discussion on that. Now, my question is, where do your ideas come from? What's the basis for them? Just what I've always believed, what my loud Aunt Joyce used to say, uh, where do I, where have I investigated, why do I believe these things? Does the truth of God play the role of a sounding board for what I'm going to say about what God accepts, rejects, how he operates, who he is? Or is it something else? You have a dear friend whose marriage is falling apart and you are put in a position to give advice to them. Do you give advice for them to divorce or work it out? And why? Why do you give that advice? What's the basis for it? What, I mean, right, you, you have ideas. All of us have ideas about marriage and divorce. We have ideas about them. We got them when we're little. We got them modeled for us by others. We got them by the culture. When it comes to the moment where I'm going to speak to you about what I think you ought to do, here's an idea for you. Where do I get my ideas from? Does the sounding board of the Bible inform me on those views in my life? You engage in a debate about Barack Obama. His positions, his policies, his his activities. What's informing your view? On whether you like him or don't like him. Now remember, we have some basis of these ideas floating around inside of us. It's family traditions. There's religious upbringing. 
There's whether you got money or don't have money. Whether your philosophies of life are about protecting the money you got or about getting the money you don't have. Whether it's about keeping somebody from taking your money or taking the money from that guy who's trying to keep it. <laughs> you got a philosophy about that. You got an approach to it. You're born in this world and your skin's got a certain color to it. Every one of those things is influencing your ideas. So we throw out a political topic. What was the sounding board for that? Rush Limbaugh? He's an entertaining dude. He's a thinker. I wouldn't want to get in an argument with him. But he's not my sounding board. Barack Obama? He's not my sounding board either. The Scripture is the sounding board for our lives. The Scripture, this wonderful thing God's given us, that He said, listen, a world of danger awaits you right here. Stand right here. Wait for me right here. I'm coming back to get you. You will be safe nowhere else. Wait for me right here. Father, keep them in your truth. Because outside of your truth, there are consequences in our lives. So what I want to close with today is the Son of God has prayed for you. He's prayed for you that your life and the ideas that shape your life would come from His ideas and would come ultimately from Him. He is the truth. They would not come from ideas that have displaced Christ. They would come from Christ who is the centerpiece of those ideas. Ideas that displace Him, they lead to consequences. They don't lead to life. Now, look at these passages here as Matt's going to come. This answers the question, is this God being a killjoy or is he releasing us into joy by his word? Jeremiah spoke of two sets of people. One, he said in chapter 3, a voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons. That's a people in the midst of consequences. Weeping and pleading. Because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord, their God. This is not a people living out of God's ideas. They have borrowed other ideas. And now their lives are miserable. And he contrasts that with Jeremiah in chapter 15 where he says, speaking to God, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. The truth of God is a source of joy and delight in our lives. It's not a prohibitor of joy and delight in our lives. What Jesus prayed for us was to bring to us the very thing that would give us joy and delight in our lives. Father, sanctify them in the truth this place where they will be safe and kept and enjoy abundance and joy in their life. All right, let's just read this passage and just close. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And you hear this morning, and what you sense is, my soul needs to be fixed. It's heavy, it's downcast, discouraged, God says, stand right here. Stand right here. The law of the Lord revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. As if I could tell you on your way out today, there will be two stacks, two giant stacks in the lobby. On the left will be gold bricks. Help yourself. Or you can choose from the other stack. The other stack will be a stack of Bibles. How many of us would really think, well, I could cart out some gold bricks. I could fix some issues in my life, man. Can we bring a wheelbarrow? (laughs) How many of us would choose the Word of God? See, the God who wrote the Word says... His truth is more to be desired than gold. What this word can do in my life is of greater value than all the money I could possess, all the sweet things in life. It's the prayer of the Son of God. He's praying that our life would be kept in the truth. Now, I want us to stand up together. and I just just want to allow God to speak to you personally for a moment to find out where you're at let God turn on your GPS let God find you here and let him speak to you about what it is that he wanted you to hear this morning it's not just an argument about where we create church doctrine from it's 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 a case for what's going to inform our lives what ideas will we live out of and you just think for a moment as i read this again anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us than god becomes an enslaving idol Remember these questions What makes us uncontrollably angry, anxious, or despondent? What racks you with guilt that you just can't seem to shake? Lord, right now, I don't know if many of us here care all that much about church history. Because most of us are having a hard enough time managing our own history. And Lord, I know that there'd be some people here this morning who walked in this building very, very much in touch with their moment of anger this week, how it's brought destruction, their fear and anxiety about events and people, the conflicts that they're having right now because there's somebody trying to control somebody else despondency because things just haven't been working out and they want to quit. Lord, give grace this morning to see those aren't the issues. They're the fruit of the issue. 
They're the experience that we have when we look away from your truth and we embrace other ideas. So Lord, this morning, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity for each one of us to decide. Will we embrace God's truth, his ideas, to let them rule over us to make God and His ways a non-negotiable in our lives, that we might have joy and delight in our hearts replacing these other feelings. Lord Jesus, this morning, would you bring about the answer to this prayer? You prayed that we would be sanctified in the truth. Your word is the truth. God, let that be true for every one of us here this morning. Lord, let not our lives be a display of the consequences of bad ideas, religious ones or philosophical ones. If you're here this morning, just I want to let everybody just continue to have your head bowed in prayer. If you're here this morning and and you would you'd feel like your life is out of step with God. God just hasn't been a major player. He hasn't seemed to be on the scene. He's not a topic of discussion for you very often. Reading His Word, something that's foreign to you. Perhaps this morning what God is revealing to you is that you have misplaced Him. He's not the very center of your life. And how kind of God to bring you here this morning to let you know He wants to be the very center of your life. And you have the opportunity, even right now, in your own heart, to turn to God and to use a biblical word to repent, to tell God, God, I'm sorry. I've misplaced you. Run after other things. Lord, you have not been to me what you should have been all this time. I'm sorry, God. I turn away from that. Tell God that. Turn to Him. Turn to the to the one who died on a cross in your place to remove guilt and sin so he could come into your life. He wants to come into your life. He wants to take over the first place. Ask him to do that. In your own words, say, God, come in. Come into my life. Jesus Christ, I need you. Forgive me. I turn away from my own ways and I want to learn your ways now. Help me. Help me to know you. And help me to follow you. From this moment on, I want my life to be different. Because I want it to be lived in the safe ground of your truth. All the rest of my days. In Jesus' name. As Matt closes us in a song, I want want to encourage you. If you're here this morning and you don't own a Bible. um, either, Either on your way out, walk in the bookstore. And, and ask somebody in the bookstore for a free Bible. Right? Don't have any gold, but we do have Bibles. <laughs> ask someone for a Bible on your way out. It will, it's not an imposition. It is a delight to give you the Word of God, the truth of God for your life. So you are, you are not doing something awkward that you should feel, huh, I'm asking for a handout. No, you, you're just helping yourself to something that we want you to have. So if you don't have a Bible, please pass through the bookstore and ask somebody who looks like they're working in there, um, where would I find the free Bible? Right. 